Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. We'll turn now to our parsha for this week and take a few moments to uh, think about and reflect on this week's Torah portion. As I mentioned at the beginning of service, it is a double portion, uh, at least for uh, many of us in the diaspora this week. The portion is Chukat Balak, uh, and it is uh, an absolutely jam-packed double Torah portion. Uh, Some of the most famous stories uh, and some of the most challenging stories uh, in all the Torah are are present in this week's Torah portion. And I'm going to start us off by sharing uh, just one of them. Uh, And so if you want to uh, follow along, I'm going to read a little bit from chapter 20 of the book of Numbers, Parsha Kukat. Um, In my JPS Tanakh, it's page 329. Uh, but um, where, whatever version you are looking at, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1 is where I'm going to begin. Uh, and also with blessing for studying Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elohim Melech HaOlam, Asher Kichanu B'mitzvotav, B'tzivanu, La'asok B'divrei Torah. The passage starts this way. V'yavo'u b'nei Yisrael kol Barzin. The Children of Israel, the entire congregation, uh, arrived at the wilderness scene in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, according to the Torah. And the people dwelled in Kadesh. And Miriam died there. And she was buried there. And the people had no water. The congregation had no water. And they gathered upon or against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses. And they spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brethren perished at the instance of the infinite. And why did you bring the congregation of the infinite to this wilderness to die there? Us and our beasts. And why did you take us up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? This is no, a place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's not even water to drink. Moses and Aaron came away from the congregation to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. The presence of the infinite appeared to them, and the infinite spoke to Moses, saying, You and your brother Aaron take the rod and assemble the community, and before their very eyes order the rock to yield its water. Thus you shall produce water for them from the rock and provide drink for the congregation and their beasts. Moses took the rod from before the infinite as God had commanded him. Moses and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock. And he said to them, Listen, you rebellious or bitter people. Shall we bring forth water for you from this rock? Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his staff. And out came copious water in the community and their beasts drank. But the infinite said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to affirm my sanctity in the sight of the Israelite people, Therefore, you shall not lead this congregation to the land that I have given them. Those are the waters of Meribah, the waters of quarrel or the waters of rebellion, meaning that the Israelites quarreled with the infinite through which God affirmed God's sanctity. 
This is a Torah portion and a story about <laughs> rebellion, about evil, um, about uh, the challenges um, uh, and opportunities and failures of leadership, about uh, what uh, Heschel calls the insecurity of freedom, the challenges of liberty, the uh, conflicts uh, and contradictions of liberty. Uh, and it is in some ways the perfect passage and the perfect Torah portion to, uh, to, to discuss and to think about uh, on this 4th of July, on this Independence Day, in the context of the upheaval and the revolution and the, uh, and the atmosphere um, all around us. And uh, our guest this week is the perfect person to bring in to, uh, to talk about it uh, along with me. And so it is my, my honor and my joy to welcome Billy Planer. Uh, Billy is the uh, founder and director of Etgar 36, uh, which is a, um, a pluralistic, independent, nonpartisan, and nonprofit Jewish educational venture uh, that, uh, that, that strives to bring Jews uh, of all ages uh, and people of all ages and stages and backgrounds um, into conversation uh, and engagement with, uh, with our country's uh, complicated history um, in a way of, of uh, encouraging people to get involved socially and politically in their communities uh, and in our country. Billy uh, got his start as a youth director before he launched Ekar 36. Uh, and he was my USY director when I was a teenager, uh, and um, uh, an incredible uh, influence on me and, and my life, uh, one of the teachers that I did and still cherished the most in my life and in my world. In, in so many ways, um, you have Billy either to thank uh, or to blame for uh, the way I turned out. Uh, and so, uh, Billy, welcome. Uh, thanks so much for being here. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. And what a wonderful coincidence of July 4th to be here with y'all. So, yeah, so it's, it's a great coincidence of, of July 4th. Um, and, uh, and like I said, I think that you're really the uh, perfect person to help us make sense of, uh, or at least to, to um, complicate maybe for us, um, <laughs> uh, this, this, mo this moment, this portion, um, right. uh, um, the, the, this day that we're, that we're in. So, um, let, let's start with this, right? You, under normal circumstances, would uh, be leading your flagship summer program um, with, uh, with, with teens from all over the country, um, taking them on this uh, extraordinary journey across America um, to engage with, uh, with, with our history and with our present. Um, so what, what would you be doing today uh, if you were uh, on the road with Eckhart 36? So technically today, and there's not a day that doesn't go by where I'm not uh, visualizing the schedule we should be having, we would have left Dallas, Texas this morning and made our way to Oklahoma City. And it's really, uh, thinking about it being on July 4th is really amazing uh, taking these teenagers from Dallas where many people in America uh, have a definite life event that um, just before my time, you can remember where you were on November 22nd, 1963, when President Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. And really, that may have been one of the first events that started us to the point of the late 60s, of the counterculture and the revolution in the streets in the 60s. Um, and then we get to Oklahoma City, and for teenagers today, the events of the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City is in an interesting historical place in that they don't really know much about it. It's not recent enough that they remember it, and it's not really in the history books. So we take them there to talk about the events of, uh, um, of the bombing of the Mira Federal Building. For many of them, it is brand new information. It is eye-opening information. And for them to really sit and, and understand the one of the first spots of domestic terrorism uh, in this country. For a lot of them, all of a sudden, we're starting to introduce this idea of gray in their lives. Things aren't good or bad, things are happening. Um, and the understanding of 
they need to get engaged with what's going on around them to try and create change because things are going to impact them. You know, and, and if you've been to Oklahoma City in the memorial, it is powerful that really it's just average citizens doing what we do are usually when there's not a pandemic uh, every day of going to work. They just went into the office building and at the memorial, they have two walls. And on one wall, it says 901 and the other wall says 903 because the explosion was at 902. And it's what is that that life can just change in a minute. And uh, it reminded me of this quote, uh, I'm trying to remember who it would be from, but you know, they said on your tombstone, you're gonna have two dates, uh, the date of your birth and the date of your death. And in the middle is a dash. And it's really up to us as to what are you gonna do with that dash? That's your whole life right there. Um, so we would have been there and really exposing uh, the teenagers to gray and that things impact you that you might not even understand. So you may as well get involved. And, you know, that's a pretty good lesson for today, uh, today's world as well. You know, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you uh, brought up uh, uh, all of that. Um, but, but in particular, in thinking about um, Oklahoma, I, uh, there's a couple of things that, that pop into my head. The first is, you know, um, having been to uh, the Murrah uh, Building uh, and Memorial Museum that's there a few times, that there's one thing that always sticks out to me from, from mm -hmm. that space is this graffiti on the wall of the building from, um, yeah. I think it's a fire, firefighter team five or the, one of the yeah. first responder teams. And they wrote, um, we search for the truth, we seek justice, the courts require it, the victims cry for it, and God demands it. Yeah, powerful, powerful. And really, uh, so we see that on our way out, the memorial. It's on the side of a wall, and we walk them intentionally out that way so they see it. And I think what it's, what I take away from it, what I hear some of the teenagers take away from that is not to wait around. In, in our community, our teachings, where there is no leader, strive to be that leader. You know, fill the gap that not to wait around. Um, and you can even see that, you know, you talked about, or we've talked about, you know, hitting the rock keeps Moses from going to the promised land. The other major figure in our history as Americans and as Jews of who preached about the promised land uh, and didn't quite get there, and some would argue we're not there clearly yet, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And as, a, as an Atlantan, as a native Atlantan, Michael, I know you are as well, uh, incredibly proud of our city, the creating one of the most uh, producing, I think one of the, arguably one of the greatest Americans this country's produced, but that both Moses and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. pushed back against being leaders and yet had to step in to fill the gap. Dr. King was chosen, he was 25 years old, uh, you know, it's not so old, uh, to be the head of the Montgomery Improvement Association, you'd think, well, of course they chose Dr. King. He's Dr. King. Well, at 25, he was not Dr. King. Uh, and one of the reasons the locals will tell you they chose him was the Black community had no idea how the bus boycott was going to go. And if it didn't go well, retribution was going to be brutal. And they wanted to be able to say to the white power establishment, that wasn't us, that was that guy from Atlanta and we sent him back to Atlanta. So one of the reasons Dr. King was chosen was because he was not local. And so with adults and with teenagers on our civil rights trips, we definitely teach the humbling lesson there is don't wait until you're ready to be the leader. Sometimes you have to step in and it doesn't really matter why you're stepping in. Whatever you believe in, God, the divine presence, karma, the system, is going to put you where you need to be. And so where there is no leader, strive to be the leader to take you to the promised land. But also, you know, we can't let the end point be why we're doing it. You know, Moses doesn't get to the promised land. Dr. King doesn't get to the promised land. We, with what's going on right now, might not see the end result of our work, but we'll have to have faith that we're pushing it there. So, wow. Um, so there, there's 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 so many threads there that I that I want to uh, pull mm -hmm. on. Um, but I want to go back to Oklahoma for just a second because mm -hmm. it's related to this. I don't know if do you make a stop in Tulsa on Ekar? 
we do not because we're going the other way. I have been to Tulsa a couple times, but yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I just, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because um, I shamefully, I think, didn't know about um, the, uh, the, the uh, bombing of Black Wall Street, the, the massacre <laughs> that occurred against the African-American community in Tulsa um, in uh, about a hundred years ago now. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, I, I found out about it by watching the HBO series Watchmen that uh, opens the series with, with, the, with that scene, yeah. um, which is a, an extraordinary depiction of it. Um, and I, and I you know, said to myself, like, is this a real thing that happened? Yeah. And Googled it and then found out that it actually was a real thing that happened. Um, now we're starting to confront it and people are talking about it. Um, uh, but you know, it reminded me of the, of, of the sort of um, mythologized version of history that, uh, that, that we so often get and how you, you know, you're talking about um, King. You know, we have this, um, you know, this image of King from the end of his life um, or, from, or from, you know, the, the way he's become a sort of martyr and a hero uh, uh, post, you know, after his death. Um, but he, you know, he had a lot of enemies um, uh, during the course of, of his life. And, you know, so, so I, I, I wonder if you could reflect on that in a moment, because you, you take teens and groups all over the country and, and in particular in the South to get them to confront um, history uh, in, in a way that is um, different than a lot of them, a lot of us had been taught about history. I, I had a friend who uh, posted a, a, a meme the other day that struck to me. Um, he said, stuck me, he said, um, you know, when we learned about history, about uh, civil rights history in, in, in school growing up in, in Georgia, it's not exactly true. It's a little bit of a, a caricature of it, but, um, but it, there's some truth to it. it said, you know, we, we learned, you know, that for a long time there was slavery um, mm -hmm. and it was bad, but uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, came and fixed it. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, and then, and then things were fine. Um, until you know one of the um, you know one of the uh, last remaining racists uh, killed Lincoln, um, and then things got bad again. Uh, but then uh, but then Martin Luther King came and fixed that um, until the last remaining racist uh, killed King. But then he got put in jail, and now we're all fine. Right, right. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I've heard that too. That like the civil rights story is Rosa Parks, Dr. King, and we're all good. Um, and clearly, I think America 2020 would tell you we're not, we're not good. It, wherever you fall out on what's happening on the streets of America today, I think we can agree that things are not the way we should be, we would want them. This is probably not the July 4th we want to be celebrating right now. The, the, the health score of America right now is probably not where we want to be. Um, so, you know, it, you and a lot of America learned about Tulsa Probably a lot of America learned about Tulsa just two weeks ago when, when President Trump went there for his rally and people learned, oh, why are people pushing back and learned about what Ju Juneteenth was. He, he wasn't completely wrong that he made it popular. Uh, I think a lot of white America had no idea what this was. And sadly, we have to learn about it through a negative, uh, through, through a conflict. But at least we learn about it. But Tulsa is not alone in that Atlanta, New York City, the way our cities, I, I'm not sure about Richmond, but the way our cities have been designed, Robert Moses in New York City, you know, the way you create your highway systems um, defines who was where. And in Atlanta, right through Dr. King's neighborhood, the Auburn Avenue, which was also a Mecca for black America, a power base of black America, they didn't do like Birmingham, or Selma and sick the dogs and, and hoses that could be visualized. What did Atlanta do? Atlanta's always wanted to be a major city. So it puts a highway, builds a highway. The quickest way from point A to point B is a straight line. It curves at one point. It curves right at Auburn Avenue. So they have to shut down Auburn Avenue to build a highway. Nobody's gonna argue about the need for the highway. Auburn Avenue, so this was in the 50s. Auburn Avenue is just recovering from that. Um, so, the, yeah, the lessons, you know, of, of the civil rights movement. And I, I want to go back to your question before I forget the point of your, your question of, um, you know, the, the, the civil rights movement is 
an extraordinary story of individuals. I think white America and the media in America puts it at Dr. King as the point and everything comes down from there. When in reality, it was much more of a flat line thing. Uh, I, I don't know what the Jewish politics are in Richmond, but in other places, uh, I mean, the Jewish community, there are politics in some other places, uh, uh, Jewish community. And that, you know, every organization thinks that they, they are it. So you had the movement in Birmingham, you have the movement in Selma, you have the movement in Montgomery. Every community had a movement and they thought they were more important Now what, than what Dr. King was doing nationally. Uh, there's a famous story. Uh, the big uh, leader in Birmingham was Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. The airport is named after him. And um, he was everything civil rights in Birmingham. And there was a fantastic story that he was beaten uh, in front of the 16th Street Baptist Church. He was in the hospital, laid up in the hospital. During, while the rest of the movement was doing um, uh, negotiations with the police department. And Dr. King came in and Dr. King was going to agree to four out of the five. Uh, the police department was gonna to agree to four out of five demands. And Dr. King said, that's good enough. Well, word gets back to Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth in the hospital that King was gonna sign off on four out of the five. And he, the story is he rips off the, the t everything that's connected to him, checks himself out of the hospital without even getting dressed in the robe and shows up at the meeting and yells at King. Um, so I think what Dr. King did was he took a lot of the national glare, a lot of the national media uh, spotlight so that the local communities could do their thing. And also when he would show up, he'd raise money. But you are right in your first thing is that, you know, it's humanizing. Just like Moses um, struck the rock instead of listening to God, it's a very human thing. What I think is important about our, our ancestors in the Torah is they give us permission to be very human. None of them are perfect. If you're a therapist, the book of Genesis is right for your whole, you know, dysfunction throughout. Um, it's, it's no doubt, no wonder why our people are so therapized, uh, so in therapy. <laughs> but Dr. King has become this Dr. King that we acknowledge and, and quote and put on Facebook all the time. But at the end of his life, he was angry, he was frustrated, he was demonized by America, because don't forget, he was against the war. He was anti-Vietnam before it was cool to be anti-Vietnam. And also his own people were moving around him and, and moving away from his ideals. You have a black power movement coming up. And so he's trying to be relevant. I mean, and once again, he's not even 40 years old at the time. So don't forget how young he was. And this all of a sudden comes up when the, the garbage worker strike, the sanitation worker strike in Memphis, Tennessee happens. And they call Dr. King to come down because they view this as a human rights issue. And he goes down, but at this time, he is in total battle with Lyndon Johnson over the war. Lyndon Johnson's like, why aren't you with me on this? I was with you on civil rights. And Dr. King's like, you're sending my people in disproportionate numbers to Vietnam. And by the way, I'm, I've always been uh, against violence. So of course I'm against the war. Uh, so Dr. King is not, at the end of his life, is not who we celebrate today, but he's a very human man, also under the pressures, let's be honest, of the FBI investigating him constantly. J. Edgar Hoover wanted to discredit him, wanted to take down any leadership, but also he was leading a life that allowed for some questions of his life. Yeah. You know, I mean, so uh, what, what you're, uh, you're getting at, uh, um, something that, that I think is really important that, um, you know, there's, there's way in which we, you know, um, mythologize um, history and we mythologize our, our heroes uh, in a way that um, actually prevents us from, um, from truly grappling with, with, you know, with, with the meaning of uh, events and with their legacy um, and with uh, the ways in which we move forward. I'm thinking about the Torah portion that, that, um, that begins that, that, seen with with the with with the rebellion and the striking of the rock it begins with miriam dying and there's a way in which i think that like that that death and friction and pain and challenge um are um are are, are the catalysts for growth there's a there's a quote that i just discovered 
um, by one of the Disney Imagineers who, who said, um, there's, there's no motion without friction. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I see that in this story that, um, that you know, uh, that, that what's happening here, there's just tremendous friction. I think that we forget that our, that our country was born in revolution and how, and how profoundly radical um, our founding fathers were, right? They, they, they knew that if they, had, if they were going to lose, um, that they would get hanged for, uh, for, for, treason. Uh, for, for treason, right? And, um, and, and yet, you know, there's, you know, as I think always happens with, you know, um, kind of like revolutionary movements that succeed, there's a sort of um, conservatism that, that entrenches from that and, a, um, and an ambivalence toward uh, the, the, you know, revolutionary or radical movements um, that, that emerge in the same tradition and in the same spirit that they may have. But, you know, we want to preserve um, what we have accomplished, what we've, what we've uh, achieved. And so I think that that um, uh, connects with the, with the uh, propensity to mythologize history, to say, you know, um, to say, like, you know, the founders were great, um, superhuman, uh, and, you know, could do no wrong, uh, developed, uh, you know, uh, uh, divine, in, divinely inspired uh, uh, documents and institutions um, that are um, unassailable uh, and, uh, and, you know, and, um, uh, uh, and, and, and perfect in their integrity um, when the, the, the story is a lot more complicated, um, that there's a lot more friction involved um, and, you know, and to, and to deny that friction then or to, um, to, to, to perpetually oppose it now disables forward motion. Oh, right. Nothing comes out of comfort. Only out of discomfort is growth going to happen. Um, why would you want to change if you're comfortable? Um, and part of it is uh, the people who are not comfortable making the people who are comfortable understand there's discomfort. It sort of reminds me too, uh, President Obama on the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation uh, saying that really freeing the slaves freed the slave owners as much as it did the slaves in that you might not even realize the heaviness of, um, of owning a human being, uh, of, of taking care of that. So it was an interesting two-sided piece there. Or, um, you know, Dr. King at the end of his life spoke in, at Vanderbilt University about a year before he died, saying to the white audience, if you don't think, if you feel you can't join us because of family considerations, business considerations, I promise you, we will set you free. That if you're holding on to, to hate, if you're holding on to keeping somebody down, it's, a, it's an incredible burden on the person too who's doing it. So it's, it's an unseen uh, benefit, I think, to get involved in, in creating the change. But it's also, Michael, when you were saying that, I was thinking of this phrase we try and teach the teenagers on our trip is, you can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. And that if you're gonna wait around until everything is completely perfect, what are you gonna do? Uh, you know, are you ever gonna get motion? Or are you gonna have paralysis by analysis there? Are you gonna overthink it? Um, and so I, I think the, just, we're seeing it right now in the country, and I know in Richmond, Virginia, too, with the whole idea of the statues, of the monuments, of, of who, what parts come down, what parts don't. Does all of it come down? So, for example, my neighborhood in Atlanta, uh, in Decatur, where it was against the state law to take down the uh, Confederate monuments, uh, a judge put an injunction in, and we did take down the major obelisk that was to the Confederacy right by the courthouse. Next to there was just a statue of Thomas Jefferson writing a document, um, probably the uh, you know, Declaration of Independence. That went also. And part of the discussion is, you know, part of the discussion is, can you hold 2020 ideals on people living in 1700s? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not really the person, I don't look like the person who should be answering that question. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting conversation we're having right now of uh, 
the monuments versus the people and, and these people who had this idea of this country and could write the founding documents, but also own slaves. And, and where do we go with that? What do we do with that? And does one act wipe out everything you've done or does what you've done wipe out an insidious part of your life too? It's a, it's a fascinating discussion and an uncomfortable discussion. But once again, nothing's gonna come out of comfort. These discussions are, the change is gonna come from discomfort. And I think, you know, President, uh, Rabbi Heschel wrote to President Kennedy in, in like 1963. Uh, mm -hmm. Right, and, and said to President Kennedy, uh, so this had to be in the spring, he goes, you know, we have to deal with, and he used the word of the time, vernacular of time, the Negro issue. And you, he calls on President Kennedy to start a Marshall Plan for the black community in America. And he ends with one of his famous quotes. He goes, this time calls for moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. And there's not many times, I think, where you can know you're in that moment that requires that or is a revolutionary moment. I do think right now we are in that moment. And, and where are we going with that? So what does is, what is moral grandeur and spiritual audacity look like to you in 2020? Wow. Um, I think it is... Um, Connecting. It is people who don't necessarily need to connect, realizing that our lives are better when everybody's life is better. I mean, that's a huge statement in 2020 where everything is so individualized. You know, think about our society right now. Our society is so geared towards you doing what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. We don't even have, and people on this uh, call will remember when you just had three television stations, it was much easier to have a communal experience. You know, even in 1983, the final MASH episode, something like 70 million people watched. That's never going to happen again, where we are going to have a communal experience. Everything is geared towards the individual, how you want to have it. You know, um, I used to call it back in the day, Michael, when you were in the youth group, the dominoes effect, which is you're gonna order the pizza exactly how you want it. It's no longer how I'm going to give it to you, how I, what I think is best for y'all. It's gonna be what you think is best. So right now that, that a large, very diverse chunk of America is choosing to be in the streets and realizes that, that my life is tied into your life is powerful. I, I think that that takes, some moral grandeur and spiritual audacity to give up. Look, I, as a white male with privilege, I, I could easily just stay in my place. And you have the whole, uh, don't forget, you have the whole COVID reason not to be out there. You know, people are choosing to still, and yet still go out there and then bring it to our own community. Michael, if I could for a second, uh, this may go off the track if you wanted, but you know, we as Jews are grappling with what is the, the Black Lives Movement? Yeah. Deal with the Jewish identity and the, the BDS movement and all that. Finding Jews saying, even if, even if the Black Lives Movement has this piece in their, in their platform, even if these are human beings who are being murdered in our streets, we need to show up. And we'll talk about this later, but right now, the immediate thing, you know, um, every religion has the golden rule. And, uh, and, and this can be applied to this. Ours is love your neighbor as yourself, which is pretty straightforward. But yet the Torah then also talks about, but take care of the orphan, take care of the widow, take care of the sick. And you gotta wonder, isn't love your neighbor as yourself enough, like that's all encompassing. But what you take away with is there are vulnerable people amongst you and they need special attention. They may need from time to time extra attention. The New Testament idea is that the story of Jesus with the hundred sheep and that one was sick and he sent the other 99 away and said, right now, this one needs our attention. So right now there are communities in our country that need our focus right now and need our attention. 
and mm-hmm. our our time is tied up. Hate does not discriminate. You know, we unfortunately have seen the effects of hate, the shootings in Pittsburgh, the shootings in San Diego. We have seen the glory of the community show up for us. And therefore we need to show up too, because we are all tied into this, sadly, the circle of hate there. Yeah, I mean, you know, in thinking about that letter from uh, Heschel and, and what your or the telegram from Heschel to Kennedy and, and what you're talking about, he, he said he has this other line in it that that's that that resonates uh, uh, with me, and um, I think you know cuts to um, to what you're what you're bringing up. He says um, uh, he says uh, we forfeit the right again 1963 language we forfeit the right to worship god as long as we continue to humiliate negroes mm-hmm. churches and synagogues have failed they must repent yeah so 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 um uh, and i and i and, you know this is one of the um you know great lessons i i learned from you i mean what what do you see as um the you know um as the role that we as jews um, ought to be playing in um, in in you know movements for um, for for justice and change. Look, sadly, we know what it's like to be on the other end uh, of it, and and so there's there's a few things to unpack here, uh, if if I can for a second. Um, one is, I think, to tell the story to get rid of our midrash and our our. Uh, the stories, the legends that we have told, which is, and to acknowledge, Jews were on both sides of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in the civil rights movement. You know, we like to tell the story that Jews were heavily involved in the civil rights movement. The reality is yes, and the reality is no. At the time, you had Jews who were slumlords, you had Jews who were store owners who were doing brutal treatment, or go back to Selma for a second, We always know about Bull Connor in Birmingham, but the sheriff in Selma, Jim Clark, was equally insidious and brutal, keeping blacks from voting. His right-hand man was a man named Saul Tepper. And this is fascinating. Saul Tepper's father escaped uh, occupied Austria, escaped the Nazis, came to America and thought this country is so great because it is brought me in and I'm, I'm free here. There's not this hate here. So Saul Tepper grows up hearing this and he becomes offended when the civil rights movement is saying, we need to change America, that things should change. He was offended by that idea and thought we do not need to change in America. It, it is the way it is. And so um, you also saw uh, the young people coming in into the movement two um, martyrs, Jewish martyrs, Andrew Goodman and Mickey Schwerner, who died in Mississippi in Freedom Summer, were murdered by the Klan. They would never have called themselves Jews. They, they didn't see it as a Jewish thing. So I think one thing is for us to understand the narrative, tell the right narrative, um, and then understand the role of uh, the religious leader. I think, what's the line, Michael? I'm going to blank on the line, but is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. You got it. Um, you know, once again, that nothing comes from comfort. Um, that, that should be one of the ideals. But also, we Jews, uh, I will say this. I think now when we talk about American Jews, we need to understand there's, there's segments of that. There are Jews of color all across this country. And they are dealing with this very differently than what we consider the usual Jew, who's the white Jew. And so I want to talk about white Jews for a second, and that we need to understand that I think we have power. We are not seen by most other people as a marginalized group. We're seen as white people. But that gives us some power and some strength. And we realize that we are all connected here, and that we should use our disproportionate power in America. We, we have established ourselves. Yes, anti-Semitism is, is, is on the rise. But in reality, we have power. We could bring groups up with us and realize we are not the savior crowd. We just, instead of the power dynamics, if we are helping these people, let's be of service to communities that need help and bring us up together. How powerful to create 
that one world the that we are all made in the image of god to see ourselves and god in the other human being that's it it's over you know if you if you can do that um uh, there's a bumper sticker we have on on our summer trip every year it said if you can see yourself in others then whom can you harm and that's it instead of seeing people as the other start viewing them as another another human being creating the image of god with us so I, I think all of that. I think the, you know, uh, the other thing I'll tell you is in Atlanta, interestingly enough, you know, you know, you had two major events that really shaped American Jewish identity. The lynching of Leo Frank. There are 400 documented lynchings in the Georgia area. 399 black, one, Jew, uh, one white guy, uh, Leo Frank. It scared the white uh, Jewish community because they thought that they were blending. They thought they were gonna be safe much like, you know, Berlin Jews in the 30s. Like, I'm German, you know, mm -hmm. I'm Berlin. Uh, this isn't going to be me. Then fast forward to the 50s, um, the rabbi of a reform, the major reform temple, not a creative uh, naming committee, they call themselves the temple, and he was outspoken for civil rights, working with uh, Dr. King, Rabbi Rothschild. And if you've seen Driving Miss Daisy, this is the scene there where the temple is bombed. Rabbi Rothschild's wife calls it the bomb that healed because it brought out the editor of the newspaper. It brought out Mayor Hartsfield, if, you fly, if you've flown into Atlanta, Hartsfield, Jackson Airport. Um, the whole community came out to show support and that's wonderful. And we felt wonderful about that. But black churches were being bombed in silence all the time. And so if we wanna know where the world was in the 30s, if we wanna know where was the communities at Pittsburgh and San Diego, we must show up for other communities and it might not be a perfect fit, but we can work on that later. Let's first show up. Then you can have the conversation, let them know that we are there. And then you can have the conversation. How does black lives matter connect with Palestinians? Because when Ferguson is happening and the tear gas is happening, the black community in Ferguson was getting texts from Palestinians saying, we see what's happening to you. This is how you deal with tear gas. Unfortunately, a lot of our community in St. Louis and Michael, your in-laws will know this. We went back to our suburbs. We, we hid for a moment. I think if we're there, we have a voice then and, 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 and to show up, I think it's powerful. And, and so once again, if every group can show up, then the people, uh, perpetrating the hate will know that they are actually out outnumbered. Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to stay on it for a second. Uh, and, yeah. and, uh, this will be my last question to you before we, uh, we unfortunately need to uh, move on, yeah. but, um, but okay. So today is, um, Independence Day, 4th of July and in, in, in a time of pandemic of, uh, uh, Injustice, unrest, um, uh, division, uh, mm -hmm. challenge. Mm -hmm. um, are you optimistic or cynical about America this Fourth of July? Incredibly optimistic. Couched with, I forgot there was going to be July Fourth until a couple days ago. Like it did not. Feel time like doesn't really mean anything anymore. Okay, time a does not mean anything anymore. But also. Just building up to it. I was like, really, is, are we going to be out celebrating about this? But really deep down, yes, these are rough times. And if people grew, were alive in the 60s, you know, as I try and teach the teenagers, if you want to understand America, you got to go to 67, 68. I mean, that was a horrifically tearing apart of the country without really a blueprint of how it happened before. And you had your leaders being murdered in front of you on television, right? Um, right now, I'm able to do exactly what I just did, re reference back to 68 going, there was another time like this. But look at the intensity in the action, in the activism, and the acknowledgement of what is wrong right now, and the intention to do something about it. You know, we have had black people murdered in the streets before and it's lasted a week maybe this is going on a long time 
And I think we've reached a tipping point. Somewhere in here, enough of America has decided enough. And I think it comes to fundamental core questions that people who don't look like the people being shot in the streets of America by, you know, um, so white people are saying, this is not the country I, I want to be a part of or, or live. This doesn't represent me. Because everything is about you, you know, it, it does come about selfishness. It is selfish, but, um, and you're seeing major corporations. Look what's happening to Facebook this week. Major corporations. And I think business is going to be the driver of social change more than even government. But major corporations are saying, Facebook, you need to get your house in order. We can't promote hate like this. So I think you're starting to see this. I mean, day to day, it probably doesn't look good. But as I've heard Congressman John Lewis say, you can't tell me that over the last 60 years, stand in my shoes and tell me we haven't changed. You gotta take the long view, you know? Uh, and, and I think we are seeing tremendous change. Once again, the lesson, so just um, a, a week ago, I think was the fifth anniversary of the Supreme Court decision on marriage equality. And we meet with the gentleman, Evan Wilson, who really was the spearhead of changing, uh, getting that law, getting the Supreme Court to get where it did. And he did not go into the courtroom. He instead fought the fight on the streets, which was his belief, his theory ever since he was in college was, you've got to change the hearts and minds of the community. The civil rights community would say, great, we got the legalities done, we can sit at the lunch counter but the white guy next to us still doesn't want us there. We didn't change the hearts and minds. And I think the optimism comes from the idea that I think the hearts and minds are changing. My mom is 85 years old. We have had a lot of talks about, she is of the post Holocaust generation. She grew up in Norfolk, Virginia. And so not far from y'all, but um, she would often say, how come the black community can't do what we did? My parents came over, nobody helped them. And we would have these conversations all the time, right? To just the other day, she couldn't wait to send me a picture that she was out on the streets with a Black Lives Matter sign out there protesting because she has, and it all comes down to who you know, she has a transgender grandson. And she's like, if hate is happening to black people, they're coming after my grandson, and I will not allow that. You don't want to make the grandparents angry. You've lost if you're making the grandparents angry there. But it all, Michael, I'll end with this. I know you got to go on. And you knew me from growing up that when I would say lastly, that meant five more things are happening. <laughs> I, I, I learned that lesson well. My, my congregants can tell you. <laughs> sorry, I taught them that one. But um, it would, I would end with this. It does not have to be some huge action that you do. Your synagogue does not need to do a one program that's going to solve this. By the way, if you had that program, please do it then. Uh, that's going to solve all this and, and make it fine. Um, it is going to be talking to somebody who doesn't look like you, vote like you, pray like you, love like you, think like you. That's how we're going to change and so I'm incredibly optimistic in the end goal that we will do this one conversation at a time, just what we've done right here. And so I just want to say thank you all. Michael, the gift, uh, if anybody is an educator out here, you know that the, the, the gift of an educator is seeing the young people grow up, um, but uh, into who they're going, who you always knew they could be. Um, I did not have that with Michael. I didn't think he would ever be. No, um, but, uh, um, you know, to watch them grow up to be who they, they are going to be and to learn from them is just tremendous. For the rest of you, you can call me later. I, I've got stories that um, <laughs> will be great. But I want to thank you all for having me here. Um, happy Independence Day. And let's make next, let's do the work now. So next July 4th, we are truly proud of the country that we are living in as a uh, United States of America. Amen. Uh, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll end this conversation with, uh, with, with an excerpt from a poem that you and I discussed 
um, the other day as we were thinking about this conversation mm -hmm. uh, from Langston Hughes, and I think it really uh, cut, gets to what you're saying. And he says, uh, let America, the poem is called Let America Be America. And so he says, let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain, seeking a home where he himself is free. America was never America to me. Hmm. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love, where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme. Let any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. And so I think what you're talking about is that, that in this moment, uh, one of the things we're grappling with is the, is the recognition, finally, um, that by so many people that, that never made that acknowledgement before, that America hasn't been America to every American. Uh, right. And we uh, can be part of uh, the change that enables America to be what America promised to be for everybody who calls this place home. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's an extraordinary uh, opportunity of this moment and an extraordinary uh, challenge of, of this moment. Maybe it's the mitzvah of, of this moment. So um, I, I'm so grateful uh, for uh, everything that you have uh, taught me and continue to teach me and so grateful for you um, to, uh, to teach and inspire us this morning and to help us um, uh, commemorate the 4th of July in such a meaningful way. So thanks so much. And uh, yeah, you. If, you want, if you want the stories, feel free to be in touch with Billy. I'm sure he'll be happy to share them with you. <laughs> Um, Thank you. But, uh, and we'll, we'll conclude this portion with a, with a blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melchalam asher natan lanu Torah emet v'chaye olam natah betochenu Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. This has been Socially Distant, Spiritually Close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is recorded during virtual gatherings of my congregation, Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.